Today's reading comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Thank you, Linda. Good morning. I'm Pastor Brooks. Welcome to the gathering of Grace Community Church. You are the church. This building is just a building, but we're grateful that you're here. If you're new to Grace, you're a visitor, or maybe you've been coming for maybe a few weeks, a few months, and you're not yet part of the gathering, you don't feel connected, um, we want to encourage you to stop by the main office. It's just the, uh, the, the, the main office. As soon as you come into the into the building, you'll, you'll see it there. There's some people there that are going to help you get connected, answer any questions, and tell you some next steps in terms of how you might be connected. We are uh, continuing our series in the book of Mark, Receiving the King. And as Josh said, you can receive a, a Bible study in the office as well if you have not picked up one of those that goes along with the, the sermon series. And this morning, we're going to talk about what matters most. What matters most? Contextually, you have a scribe, you have a Pharisee, and he comes to Jesus and he asks the question, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important commandment? Everyone sitting here, whether or not you consider yourself to be a Christian or not, places higher values on certain aspects of life or certain things than you do others. It's called priorities. How do you prioritize your life? What, do you, what, do, what metrics do you use to determine what matters most for you? What matters most for you? Now, contextually, Jesus and, and this scribe are talking about the law, the commandments of God, and weighting those, weighting those. So we're going to look at three things this morning in the text. The first is, how do people view the law? How did they view the law in Jesus' day? How do people view moral imperatives in our own day? So we're going to take a look at that. And then we're going to take a look at, well, how does Jesus view the law? How does, what does Jesus find to be most important? And then by way of application, we're going to ask a question, and that is, what are you, what are you going to do with the law? How are we going to respond, us, to, to what God finds to be most important as we compare that with our own values and our own judgments. And, and that, that requires a response. So please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter, uh, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 38. And please pray with and for me as we open up the scriptures. Father, we come to you in humble dependence upon your word. Apart from you, we can do nothing, including understand what you have before us. 
what we have before us in your scriptures. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our eyes. We pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our ears, that we might hear, that we might perceive, that we might understand, and that we might obey. Lord, grant us faith to believe, faith to obey, uh, that we might glorify you. And Lord Jesus, make yourself preeminent this morning. Bring glory to yourself through the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so how do people, then and now, how do people view the law? It starts out with a question. Uh, One of the scribes came up and he heard them disputing with one another. Okay, let's pause right now. If you've been here for at least the last couple weeks, you recognize that Jesus has entered in Jerusalem and there is a series of confrontations that he has with the Pharisees, with the scribes, with the religious leaders. They are constantly peppering him with questions to try to trap him. Okay, they're, they're not seeking answers for questions that they have. That's not the motive for their questioning. Their questioning is, is it's done in order to, to trap Jesus to prove him to be false. And you can't trap Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He understands their thoughts. He knows them better than they know themselves. And he knows the law inside and out because he is the law. He is the law. He's the embodiment of the law. So this scribe is different from the rest. This scribe is different from the rest. It says that he comes up, he came up and he heard them disputing with one another. And notice what Mark says. And seeing that he answered them well. So this scribe is like, this Jesus has got it going on. He clearly understands the scriptures. He, he, he understands the scriptures. So he, this scribe stands out from the rest of the group. He has a, an air of sincerity about him that the rest of them don't. So he asks a question and he says, which of the commandments is the most important of all? Which of the commandments is the most important of all. So the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis through Deuteronomy, the, the Jews would refer to that as the Torah, the Torah, the, the books of the law is, is, is how they're referred to. The Torah, the books of the law, the books of Moses. And in, in the Torah, there are 613 commandments. Some of them are prohibitions. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie. Some of them are are, are, are commandments to do certain things. You, you need to rest on the Sabbath. And th- so there's 613 of them. And it was common in Jesus' day. It's still common today. It's common in Jesus' day for the rabbis to, to establish or assign weight to certain commandments. There were heavy commandments. And then there were light commandments. There were heavy commandments and light commandments. And it's a way of, it's a way of looking at the law in such a way, which is like, well, how do I approach this for you say, well, that doesn't seem right. They should all be weighted the same perhaps, but if they're all weighted the same and your neighbor's child falls into your well on the Sabbath and you're thinking I ought to rescue this child, throw them a rope and lift them out. And you think, oh, wait, the Sabbath prevents me from bearing a burden and lifting a weight. So at that moment, you have to make a split-second decision, which of those commandments bears more weight? So you, you can see that sometimes you, have, you, you say, well, that's just common sense. 
Yes, I don't disagree, but that's what you're doing is you're waiting a commandment. You're establishing wait. Now, you say, well, Jesus would never do that. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, he says, and I quote, whoever teaches one of these little ones to violate the least of these commands, what did Jesus just do? He just gave credence to the fact that commandments have weights. So so let's not cast shade on this scribe for asking a question which, which is, doesn't seem legitimate. It seems like all the commandments should have equal weight. He says, which of the commandments is the most important of all? So that's, that's Jesus' day. That's Jesus' day. But there's an underlying unifying principle here. It's a way to simplify the law, to make it easier to understand, easier to obey. I mean, who can remember 613 commandments? That's a lot right? So what's the overarching principle? That's, that's, he's trying to boil it down. He wants Jesus to tell him, what's the essence? How do I view the law? How do I view the law? Modern equivalent, most people approach the law in a similar way as the scribe. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be Christian. You don't have to be Muslim. You don't even have to be a, a theist. You don't even have to believe in God. Everybody starts with a presupposition. And here's the presupposition that every one of us has that there is certain things you ought to do and there are certain things you ought not to do. Can we agree with that? Okay, that, that's universal. That's universal. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. He says, the law, the law is written on the hearts of men. Here's what he means by that. People instinctively know what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. And when they see others do things they ought not to do, there's a sense of justice which is violated. And, and so people are moral beings because they're created in the image of God. You can't get away from it. So well, I don't believe in God. It doesn't matter if you believe in God. I'm not debating anyone on whether they believe in God. What I'm trying to establish and help you understand is everyone is moral. Some of you are like, I know some people that are not very moral at all. Maybe so but they all have a sense of oughtness. They all have a sense of right and wrong. Even those people that you consider to be immoral, they will look at other people and judge them to be good or bad. Go to prison. Speak to somebody in prison. There's a code of ethics there. There's honor among thieves. In the prison system, there are good prisoners and bad prisoners. If you're a child, if you're a child molester, you're on the lowest rung. You're viewed as bad. You say, yeah, but those are murderers that are calling them bad. Yes, you, but I, I'm trying to t- show you that everybody waits the law. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. Everyone has a sense of right and wrong. And the natural tendency is to emphasize aspects of the law which we find palatable or easy to follow and de-emphasize those aspects of the law which we find to be difficult or they just don't, well, they just, they're not natural for me to want to obey. You see this most glaringly in terms of what I refer to as tribalism. In the sense of progressive versus conservatives. I find this fascinating because both of these tribal entities 
appeal to the law, the moral law, as the basis for why their tribe is more righteous than the other tribe. This is just the way it works. Just pay attention and listen to what people say and how they say it. Just get on Facebook you can, or, or, or X, it used to be called Twitter. You, you'll see these, these groups uh, pointing the finger at the other about how immoral they are and how superior their morality is to the other group. So progressives tend to emphasize social justice and care for the poor to the neglect of personal responsibility and sexual ethics. I mean, this self-evident, right? Just, just watch and pay attention. Conservatives, on the other hand, tend to emphasize personal responsibility and sexual ethics to the neglect of social justice and caring for the poor. And both sides are convinced they have the moral high ground. Yes, this, this is the way it is. I remember years ago, I think it was 2010, listening to a conservative talk show host who said, and I quote, and I quote, if your pastor uses the phrase social justice or economic justice, you should run for the hills and find a different church. Ironic, considering said social commentator is a Mormon who believes that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer and believes in salvation by works. I took offense at a Mormon giving me advice on where I should attend church. Now, in all fairness, in all fairness, he wasn't talking about, he was talking about a political agenda, and I get that. I get that. But but there's an, you see, that's my point. These, and he's pointing out that there are certain, certain churches, and this is a true statement, there are certain churches that emphasize social justice to the neglect of personal responsibility. That's a true statement. And there are also churches that emphasize personal responsibility to the neglect of caring for the poor. That's a true statement. What am I saying? I'm saying that what this scribe is doing is still going on. Nothing's changed. Everyone is grabbing on to the portions of the law which they find easiest to obey and ignoring the portions of the law which they find distasteful or hard to obey. Nothing's changed. Technology's changed. We don't, they didn't have Twitter back then to, to point fingers at one another, but Everything else is pretty much exactly the same because human beings are the same. Human beings are the same. So that's how we view the law. And here's the irony. Both groups, everyone believes in a sense of right and wrong and that you ought to do what is right and that you ought not to do what is wrong. They're all in agreement on that. It's just the, well, which is the most important? Which is the most important? So... The scribe is, he wants to know, what should I emphasize? So that's how people view the law. Let's take a look at how Jesus views the law. If I were to summarize how people view the law, it would be this. People view the law as necessary, but hard to keep. So give me a unifying principle so it can be easier for me to keep. That's basically how people view the law, right? How does Jesus view the law? 
Jesus views the law differently. For Jesus, the law is the embodiment or the reflection of his character and his father's character. And it's also the evidence of whether or not we love God. It's a totally different paradigm. So let's see how Jesus answers. So Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. All right, so let's break this down. He begins with quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. This is what is called the Shema. Uh, Shema is a Hebrew word which means to hear. Hence the hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Now, Hebrews didn't have a separate word for obey. They didn't. So to hear is to obey. If you hear and obey, you've heard. If you heard the audible noise of someone saying, thou shalt not and thou shalt, and then you don't obey, did you hear? No, you did not hear. That's why the prophets would say, you have ears to hear, but you can't hear. You have ears, the, the, your eardrums vibrate, and, and that causes you to hear sound, and your brain tells you what's being said, but if you don't obey it, you didn't hear it. So, the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And the second is you shall love the neighbors yourself. Okay, so let's first of all establish what love, when Jesus says love, when the Shema says love, what, is, what does that even mean? Typically, when we use the word love in our culture, we are talking about how we feel. It's, it's describing a feeling that we have for a person or persons. So when you fell in love and you told your, your, your spouse or your fiancé, I love you, what did you mean back when you were 20, 21, 22? You probably meant that when I am around you, it elicits feelings that I don't have when I'm not around you, and I, those, that causes me to have warm affections, even passion towards you. That's what we mean when we say, I love you. When you say, I love a child, it means that I have affection for you. When you, tell, when you say, I love broccoli or ice cream, it means you really, really like it. You have strong feelings towards whatever it is you love. That's not what this means. That's not the way that Moses, God, or Jesus, or Paul, or anyone in the Bible is using the term love. The word love means to seek the good and the honor of someone else. That's what it means. Feelings may or may not enter into that equation at all. It's not bad to be in love with someone, with a spouse. It's not bad to have feelings of love for a child. That's not the problem, but that's not the primary understanding of the way the, the, the scriptures use the word love. Love is to seek the good of another. 
When Jesus says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, he does not mean that the father has warm affections for everyone on the planet. It means that he is seeking their best and their welfare and to elevate them from a state of spiritual bondage into redemption and the status of adopted children of God. That's what love means. So that's, that's how Jesus understands love. Now, the second half of this in verse 31, so the first part is the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's vertically how we, how we approach God. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a quotation from the book of Leviticus in chapter 19. Now, I, I want to turn there, and I just want to look at uh, where this passage comes from. And, and I, want, I want you to listen to the context of, of, of love your neighbors yourself. You ready? So this is starting in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Let me translate that. If you own a business, don't maximize your profits. I just lost all the conservatives in the room. <laughs> now, do you understand why Glenn Beck's statement really annoyed me in 2010? So what are we going to leave Moses' church to? That's just the first part of the verse. Let's keep reading it. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for I am the Lord. Do you know what a sojourner is? It's an immigrant. People that wander into your country that don't belong there. Some of you are getting really uncomfortable now. <laughs> you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I'm the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I'm the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Do you see the context? I don't know where you're at, but I can tell you that I tend to value the aspects of the law which my tribe values most. And the other tribe tends to value aspects of the law, which their tribe values most. And we diminish the other parts of the law as if they're irrelevant. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's all relevant. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, then you must. It's imperative that you love those that are different from yourself as much as you love yourself. You say, well, that's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. It's impossible. 
The guy comes to him and he wants Jesus to weight the law so he can find a way that unifies the law in a way that makes it easier. And Jesus says the exact opposite, which is always what Jesus does. He doesn't make it easier. He says, I'll see your law and up you everything. I'm supposed to keep all the law? Yes. And, And what is that evidence of? whether or not I love God. John chapter 14 and 15, Jesus repeats it. John chapter 14, verse 21, he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, what does that mean? I I think it means that if I love him, I'm supposed to obey his commandments. I, I think that's what that means. And I think I would be right. So what does it mean if I don't obey him? What's the flip side of that? It means that it's evidence that my love for him is lacking. That's, that's the way it is. That's, that's what he's saying. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. I can't remember if I told you, but I, uh, I, I know I told it to the church in Riverside when I preached last week, but I've been going through some old journals that I found, uh, prayer journals. And I am, since 1998, and it's like, God, help me to love well. Help me to, and generally I'm confessing my failure to fail to love, especially my wife. So that's the context. She's my closest neighbor. I have other neighbors, but she's the closest one. And so in failing to love my wife, I'm confessing my failure to love my wife well, and then I'm begging God to help me love my closest neighbor who happens to also be my wife because I don't do it well. And so I'm continually confessing. I'm continually asking him to help me love. And, and, and there's been a slow, gradual process over the years of, of being able to do this better than the day before and the week before and the month before and the year before and the decade before. So there's, there's progression here. But this is hard. This is hard when you're dealing with people that you like. But here's the truth of the matter. Sometimes our neighbors, we don't like. Sometimes our neighbors are the people we loathe. And sometimes you're married to your neighbor that you loathe. This is, this is, the, way, this is the way it is. We're constantly surrounded by people that are our neighbor and sometimes our neighbors are our enemies and they're a part of our tribe. And sometimes they're our enemies and they're not part of our tribe. Either way, we find this extremely difficult and Jesus doubles down on it. And he says, yeah, it is difficult, but it's also evidence of whether or not you actually love God. So let's keep going here. There's no other commandment greater than these. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is the unifying principle. You want a summation? There it is. That's it. That summarizes everything. If you can do that, if you can do that, you don't need the 613 stipulations. 
All of the rest will fall into place. What Jesus does here is he gives us motive, that is love for God, and he also tells us how. Whatever you do, do it in such a way that it, it brings honor and it seeks their good. And if you do that, you won't need to memorize the 613 commandments. He gives us motive and method. Motive and method. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, what, what did he just say? Well, we know what he said. We can read it. But what does that mean? What does that mean? First of all, he acknowledges that what Jesus said aligns perfectly with Scripture. He does summarize the law in such a way that the scribe is like, he nailed it. He nailed it. But there's a problem in nailing it. There's a problem in nailing it. Um, I got this from Tim Keller. I read a sermon that he preached, I think, in 1992 on this very uh, text. And Keller points out that the Pharisees' understanding of the law was that you please God through your obedience to the law. Okay, that's, that's how they viewed the law. It is you obey it and you please God. You disobey it, you displease God. So obviously you want to obey God and please him. But do we fail? Of course we fail. Do the Pharisees fail? Of course they fail, and they know they failed. So that's what, the, that's what the burnt offerings and the sacrifices are for, which are also in the Torah. So they kind of viewed it this way. You keep the law the best you can, especially the heavy commandments, the light commandments, you're going to, you know, you're, nobody's going to be perfect. And to the extent that you don't keep the law, well, at least you have the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, so you can always lean on those. You can always, I'm going to screw up every once in a while. Sometimes I'm going to be malicious, Sometimes I'm just going to sin out of, uh, out of neglect. I didn't mean to, but I did. I wasn't thinking. And, oh, we got the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. So at least we have those. And so I'll keep the law the best I can. And for the times I screw up, I have the sacrifices. And here's what the scribe is saying. You nailed it. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding, with all his strength, to love one's neighbors yourself, is more than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. In other words, there aren't enough burnt offerings and sacrifices to cover my iniquity. Do you understand what Jesus just did? He just made the law so hard to bear that all of the sacrifices in the world couldn't cover my failures. This is not an encouragement. How do we know it's not an encouragement? Look at the last verse. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God, which shows the scribe is sincere. He's not one of, the, one of those who's trying to test Jesus and trap him, but he is sincere here. And he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But look what Mark records. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
you know what they're thinking? How in the world does anybody enter the kingdom? Who can do this? Who, who actually is going to love their neighbors, even when, especially when their enemies are different, their, their neighbors are different than them, even to the point that they're actually adversarial? If, if that's what it means to love God, how am I going to love God? And I'm going to be judged for not loving God. They're left dumbstruck. They're silent. That's the end of the text. I could pray and dismiss you and leave you in despair, which would be fun for me, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Because I love you as a neighbor, as I would love myself. It's absolutely imperative that you understand why Jesus says what he says and why he, he throws down and doubles down on the law to make it so incredibly hard to obey because it is hard to obey. What's he doing here? What's, how, does, how does this text end? What's, the, what's Mark say? Everybody's silent. They have nothing more to say. There's no more arguments here. There's no more questions. They don't have any more questions. They understand. And it's because they understand that they are utterly silent. That's what the law does if you're paying attention. It shuts you up. It shuts me up. It shuts us up. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans explains this. So here's the question. What are you going to do with the law? Not the law as the progressives understand it or as the conservatives understand it or the Sadducees understood it or the Pharisees understood it, but as Jesus explains it, what are you going to do with that? What am I going to do with that? I'm going to minimize some aspects and emphasize those that are easiest for me so I can feel good about myself try to justify myself by my obedience to the parts of the law which are easiest for me to obey and ignore those aspects of the law which I find hard to obey? I know. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth might be stopped. There's a reason that no one asked him any more questions. He had exposited the law perfectly and it shut them all up. They knew what he meant. Might be stopped and the whole world might be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's what the law does for us. It gives us a moral picture of the character of God. It also gives us a guide to live our lives by. And we know that we ought to live the law. We would be better off if we, if we obeyed the law. But what, is, what does Paul say? No one is justified through their obedience to the law. The word justified, it means two things simultaneously. It means to be declared righteous and to be declared not guilty. Here's what Paul is saying. You have the Ten Commandments. You have the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you have the love of your neighbor as yourself. You have that. And you haven't done it. 
I haven't obeyed the Lord. I, don't, I haven't loved the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I certainly haven't loved my neighbors myself. Even when I try, I fail. So what, what Paul is saying is because of that, Brooks Simpson will never justify himself through the obedience to the law. There's too much failure. The sum total, the evidence of my life only demonstrates one thing, that I love myself more than anyone else. And I would be convicted in a court of law for loving myself more than anyone else. I would not be found guilty of loving God more than anyone else. That's what it means to be justified. To be justified is to be declared righteous. To be justified is to be declared not guilty. And Paul says, the law will not help you be justified. It'll only prove that you're not. Thank God for the conjunction, but. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction Don't dumb down the law. Let the law be what it is. The embodiment of God's moral character and seek to obey it in all of its aspects. But don't kid yourself. Your obedience to it will not make you right with God because you will fail as all have and all will. If you emphasize some aspects of the law to the neglect of others, here's what's going to happen. You will begin to feel self-righteous and smug and morally superior to those people who emphasize other parts of the law that you don't. And that will increase your loathing for them, increase your self-righteousness, and you will grow in your Phariseeism to the point where you will not be able to love anyone unless they're exactly like you. And this is why Facebook and every other social media platform has algorithms. So that they can show you people that are just like yourself and demonize everyone who's not. So you can feel better about not loving those neighbors that are not like you. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to have any of that nonsense. But, but if we buy into that, that's what happens. So you can go that route, but you won't be justified. And you'll give an account for God for all of the people that you fail to love. And your own thoughts and your own actions, your own attitudes, they will be the very thing that condemns you before God. As you are cast into outer darkness... But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. When Jesus came, he did not come to give us a new law. He didn't come to summarize the law. Oh, he did in the passage we just looked at. He came to keep the law. Jesus Christ is the only human being that ever did the will of his father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ is the only human being who hears the word of his father and loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, 
mind and strength. He's the only one that ever did it. But here's the irony. He was punished, not for his sin, but for mine, for yours. Everything that you and I deserve because we refuse to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor and ourselves, all of the condemnation, all of the, all of the, 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 the justice that, that we deserve, Jesus Christ received. So that those who recognize they are lawbreakers can cry out to a savior and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that is how you become justified. By crying out to God and asking him to save you from your sin because you are a lawbreaker. And here's the most beautiful thing about this is that when you receive Christ as your savior and you recognize you are not justified by your keeping the law, he gives you a love for God that you didn't have before and a glowing ember in your heart that begins to cause you to love those who are unlovable. In other words, it, you end up fulfilling the law as you come to Christ your justifier. We're going to celebrate communion, which is a picture, if you would come forward to distribute the elements, is a picture, a reminder of what God has done through his son, Jesus. So as we sing and as we pass out the elements, hold that juice, which represents the spilled blood of Christ, and hold that wafer, which represents the, the, the body of Christ in his perfect righteousness. And remember that he fulfilled the law for you. Remember that he bore the law's penalty for you, for us. Hold on to those elements. We'll sing, I'll come back, and we'll take the elements together. A few days after this encounter, with the scribe who asked Jesus to summarize the law. A few days later, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room and he institutes the Lord's Supper and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then it says in the scriptures, in the same way he took the cup and he passed it around. He says, this is the, the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is spilled for the salvation of many. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So we celebrate communion this morning as we do often because we do forget. We do slip into this idea that somehow God accepts us because we keep his law, which is a total joke. But we try to justify ourselves nonetheless. But then when we look at what Christ did on the cross, we remember that he was the one who kept the law on my behalf. And I'm righteous and you're righteous strictly because of what he did in keeping the law. And then when we drink that cup, we remember that it was his shed blood that makes me acceptable to the Father, not my obedience to his law. 
And that the punishment that I and that you deserve was poured out upon his son willingly. And what he wants us to do in remembering that is to deepen our love for him by understanding how deep the Father's love is for us. So let's pray and take the elements together. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for his righteousness, which is given, gifted, imputed to us. And we thank you for this juice, which represents his spilled blood, that he spilled so that we might be forgiven. So we take these with glad and grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please rise for benediction? Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, praise it as well. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless, go in grace, and we'll see you next week. If you'd like to be prayed for or have a prayer request, I encourage you to come forward. There'll be people up here to pray with and to pray for you.